likes to talk about death? Anyone want to, you know, enjoy talking about death? And well, it is one of today is probably one of the hardest section uh, in the book of Exodus that we're gonna go through. So I'm gonna give you a fair warning today. We're gonna talk about death, and it might not be pleasant for some of you. See, the, this is the weird thing. This is the irony. The top de- death is so common. It is common, right? The last time I checked, every birth equals death, right? Except for a few people that we know in the Bible. Everyone who was born, either they end up dead or will die. And, and you too, breathing right now, whether you like it or not, one day you'll be dead. It's so common yet that everyone will experience this, yet we, we don't like to talk about it. We, we hate to discuss it, and as a society, we work very hard to kind of conceal this topic of death. We avoid it, we, we delay it, and we try to even hide death. We don't see, well, lately, I mean, these days anyway, we don't see dead people anymore. Even we go to funeral, they are covered up, and uh, somehow we, we kind of anti-death, as if if we don't see it, it's not there. Just like little kids, you know, they play peekaboo. If they don't see their parents, their parents are not there somehow. And then they open their eyes, oh, parents there, oh, they disappear, they're like magician, right? So somehow we feel, uh, you know, we treat death in that way. Think about COVID-19. Uh, in preparation of this, I just quickly, I know there are millions of deaths because of COVID-19. I just want to know, how many deaths already, actually? There are over 6 million deaths because of just COVID-19 alone. How many dead bodies because of COVID-19 have you seen? Perhaps not many. And we, we, we even have people close to us, perhaps, that have died of COVID-19. Uh, we heard of it, our friends, perhaps but we have not seen it. We, we try to hide it. We try to cover it, the idea of death. And when, when we look at the numbers, they're just numbers. There's over 6 million people that died of COVID-19. There are people who died, not just numbers. So why do we fear of death so much that we, we, we don't like it? We, don't, we try to avoid it. We don't talk about it. Perhaps maybe it's not fear. For some of us, it's not fear. It's just, you know, we... We just don't like the idea of death. Not that we fear it, we just don't like the idea of it. See, contrary to popular belief, people say, you know, death is, it's common, but it's not natural, you see. Popular beliefs say, well, death is natural. Well, let me say it again, death is not natural. According to the Bible anyway, death is unnatural because God created you and I, human beings, to live forever. Death is not natural. And perhaps it's because of that, because the fact that we know deep down, whether you're Christian or not, deep down we, we, we have this uneasiness with death because we know death is not normal. See, you're... Your, your friends, your colleagues who, who don't read the Bible, who don't understand the Bible, may not know that, but they have this uneasiness about death. 
And you can speak to them, you know where they come from. Because you're not meant to die. That's why when we face death, we feel uneasy about it. See, death shouldn't happen. And when it happens, somehow it still shocks us. Even though it's happened to everyone, it will one day. See, the Bible teaches us a lot about death, and there will be a lot of deaths today in this chapter. And, and Christians, while Christians of all people should be most saddened by death. Why? Because we know it's not natural. So out of all people, Christians should be most saddened by death, yet we should be not shocked by it. We should be saddened by it, most saddened by it, but we shouldn't be shocked by it or terrified of it especially. We are shocked still. We are terrified still. Even though we know the outcome, uh, we, if, we, if you read the Bible. So why? Well, because as I said before, death is unnatural and, um, and tragic. But for you and I, if you, if you are a Christian, if you believe in God of the Bible, even we go through all that feelings of the tragic, the unnaturalness, the sadness of it, we should know that it is not without hope. And that's, that's a message this morning. Um, so last week, we looked at the Passover meal, the, first, the very first Passover meal, the roast lamb, the smell of that roast lamb and the fat from the lamb that the Israelites had before, well, in preparation of the 10th plague, before the 10th plague. So, and we, today we're going to see what happened next, that is the death of the firstborns in Egypt. So three things we're going to look at, the necessity of death, that's the first thing. The second thing, we're going to look at the horror of it, the horror of death, the necessity, the horror of it, and the hope of death. So we're going to end in hope. It's necessary, like there's a necessity, there's horror still, but yet there is hope in death. So the necessity of death. See, the reason for death, that's the first point, the reason for death in Egypt is due to what? What we look at this last week, due to misdirected worship. It's not due to non-worship. We think that if, if you don't come to church, non-Christian do not worship. That's what we think. But that's not true. We've seen that last week. The Egyptians, even though they did not worship God, Yahweh, they still worship. It's just misdirected. And God's judgment came not because of non-worship, but because of misdirected worship. Especially to the wrong object of worship. Now, the word serve, remember what the Bible says? Uh, Let's look at this, Exodus 4. Verse 22, 23 says this, Exodus 4. This is way before this happened. This is when God's still preparing Moses to go to the king of Egypt, to Pharaoh. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, this is God telling Moses, this is what you must say to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your 
firstborn son. Do you see the, the word serve there? Let my people go that they may serve me. The word serve is the word worship. It's the same word. Let my people go that they may worship me. See, the people in the land of Egypt did not serve God, did not worship God. And God will not let that happen any longer. And he said, let my people go that they may serve me, worship me. Or if you refuse to let him go, my son go, I will kill your firstborn son. So a couple of things here I want to just quickly mention. The, the instruction is, well, God's instruction is very clear. Crystal clear, actually. It's not let my people go, but let my people go that they may worship me. And that's very important because we want the freedom sometimes as Christians. We want the freedom to be let go, to be freed up. That's it. But that's never God's intention. When God rescue you, when God call you out of whatever sin that you are in, out of slavery that you are indulge yourself in, God never call you out and then nothing happened. God did not say, let my people go that they may enjoy the abundance of life. Of course, that is included. But God says, let my people go that they may worship me. God want to change who they worship. When you do not worship God, it is not because you do not worship anything or anyone. You just worship a different thing or a different God in your life. So the necessity of death is because idolatry of the people. Deep down in their heart, they worship another God. So idolatry is the problem, and according to the Bible, someone must pay for that sin, for that issue, for that problem. In this case, the firstborn must pay. Now, some, some of you who are firstborn here, you know what it feels like to be firstborn, isn't it? You always, I, I tell my firstborn, you, you're the eldest. You should set a good example, right? Any of you firstborn here? You know, your parents hold a higher standard if you're the firstborn, okay? If you're the youngest, you, you get the easy one, right? You, you know, you, you get all, except for the hand-me-downs, you get all the best, right? Your parents generally lenient to you, but the firstborn always get it, like, you know. This is especially true as well. I noticed this uh, recently, even though my son is now, what is he now? He's almost 15. So 14 years going 15 as a parent, I'm still learning about how to be a good parent. And the problem with uh, parenting a first child is this. They are kind of like guinea pig to us. We're still trying to learn, you know, and we make mistakes. As parents, we make mistakes. And a parent, when we make mistakes, you know, do not be afraid to apologize. And um, I try to learn that as a, as a parent because, you know, firstborn, they got it tough. Parents are a noob, right? We, we are rookie. We teach the first sons like, see, you, you, don't, you don't go to school to be a parent. How many, how many of you here go to school to be a parent? Like, you know, three years degree, how to be a parent. You know, you, 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 you don't, right? You pretty much learn as you go. And your first son, 
or your first son or daughter always is your guinea pig. You, you learn how to deal with them. So in this case even, the firstborn must pay. The sin of the family, the firstborn must pay. Seems unfair, isn't it? And the Lord says in Exodus 13, so now jump back to the chapter that we are in now, Exodus 13, verse 1 to 2, he says this, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborns. Set apart for me your firstborn. Whatever is the first to the open to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine, God says. Consecrate them, the firstborn, whether person or animals, they're mine. Consecrate them, set them apart. So in a way, when, if you're firstborn, when your parents say, you gotta set example, it's, it's kind of biblical too, isn't it? You are being set apart so that your siblings can learn from you all the goods and the bad that you do. Now, even for, for the Israelites here, though the blood of the lamb, remember last week the Passover meal, the blood of the lamb have saved the Israelites firstborn, they're not free yet. In chapter 13, God says, your firstborns that are still alive right now, you must set them apart for me. You must consecrate them for me. This is why we, when we look at um, Isaac, Abraham and Isaac, Abraham's struggle wasn't that, why do you want Isaac? Why Isaac? Why do I have to sacrifice Isaac for you? That was not Abraham's problem. That's not his struggle. He knows that the firstborn belonged to God. Abraham's struggle was, how can God be merciful? How can God show or, or fulfill his promise that I will be the father of many nations, that my descendants, Abraham say, will be as numerous as the stars. How can that happen if Isaac is dead? That's Abraham's struggles. Not that he has to sacrifice Isaac. The firstborn must pay. Uh, so firstborn, if you're firstborn, you carry a lot of weight. I'm, I'm, I can say this because I'm, I'm not firstborn, so it's easy for me to, to say this, right? Uh, when, when my father needs someone to look to carry on the business in, the, in, in Indonesia, I wasn't the firstborn, right? My, my, my brother moved from Singapore. He got a job in Singapore. He moved back to a small town where I come from, Indonesia, right? Um, Poppy said, my town is like a village. Um, I said, yours not different. Um, he has to move. He's the firstborn, right? I, I don't have that burden. I don't feel bad about it. Like, you know, it's not my responsibility, right? So, and this is cultural as well, I understand. But in many cultures, the firstborn carries the weight for the family. And sometimes parents, we've got to be careful about this as well. Because we may, we may put a lot of emphasis on our firstborns that is not right. Your firstborn will struggle just as much as your second son your third children, your fourth children, they, your fourth child, they carry this burden the same way. There's no need for us to, to put on more on them. See, we, I still do that to my, my, my son, uh, and sometimes I have to apologize for it. So in many cultures, firstborn is what? The future of the family carry the legacy of the family, the future of the family. 
the firstborn receive in the biblical time as well, especially the f- it is the firstborn that receive the full inheritance. Full inheritance. If you're second, too bad. If you're women, even worse, right? This is the culture in those days that this firstborn son gets everything. Now, when God said to the Israelite, your firstborn belong to me, what, what does it mean then? That's actually an act of grace, you see. Because the firstborn represent the whole family. When God say your firstborn belongs to me, God says this entire family now belong to me. Now I will take care of you. This is the thing. When God demands of their children, of their firstborn sons, God provide and protect. Unlike parents, sinful parents like us, we have a lot of demand, but we may not come through as God comes through. So when God says, your firstborn belong to me, because the firstborn represents the whole family, the entire family, God is saying, when you consecrate your firstborn to me, when you give your firstborn to me, I will take care of you, your entire family, all your needs. So your problem now become God's problem because you consecrate your firstborn to me, God says. In Exodus 1, in the rebellion and the defiance against God, Pharaoh took what? The firstborn of Israel and drowned them in the Nile River. That's the opposite of what God's want to do. He takes all the firstborn, drown them in the Nile River. Now in Exodus 12 and 13 where we are at, God is reversing that. God is reversing that. God made right what was perverted by the world, by Pharaoh in this case, by Egypt. See, the death of the firstborn in that case is necessary because of misdirected worship. Because the king of Egypt, the people of Egypt did not know God. They worship another God. The firstborn must die. See, you and I, are created to worship God and God alone. Yet we like to worship other things in our life. But God is our Father. He said we must consecrate our firstborn to Him. See, oftentimes, see, this is what we think. Well, I, I don't worship God of the Bible, but I don't worship any other gods. Yes, you don't probably don't you bow down to a statue or to, you know, I don't know, whatever people bow down to these days, but you don't do that anymore. It doesn't mean that you don't worship. We all worship. Some people just made a, made a choice what to worship. Others, without knowingly, they worship whatever that comes their way. Uh, these are, as, as we sing the song, sometimes we sin without knowing because we, we worship what God has given us, the good things that God has given us our children, our parents, our good health, our good looks, our career. We worship, they're good things from God. But we worship them. We put them up so high, they become our idol. We cannot live without it. They have taken the place in our life where only God is supposed to sit at the throne of our heart. You may not bow down to them physically, 
but you bow down to them in your attitude, in your heart, whatever that is. And that is why the firstborn must die. That is why death is necessary. It must happen. The second thing, the horror of death, just because it is necessary doesn't mean it has not has some kind of effect on us or horror. We shouldn't be so sensitized to it, right? Christian especially, like, death is unnatural, we'll be resurrected and all the stuff. And then we so uh, sensitized to it that we, we, don't want to be, we, we do not want to be upset by it anymore. I, I don't think that's the attitude of Christian too. It's like, just take it so chill about death. We shouldn't. See, let me tell you a story. One day I was, I was sitting down in my kitchen. So if you know where I live, my kitchen is at the back of my house. I was studying at the back of my house in my, at my kitchen table. This is one, 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 one morning, one sunny day, I remember. And suddenly I, I heard a loud scream and wailing coming from across the street of my house. Remember, I'm, my kitchen is at the back. I can hear a loud screaming and wailing from across the street. I ran out quickly to check out what happened. And my neighbor across the street, an old lady, was holding something close to her chest and wailing. I ran, you know, my, my heart pumping fast, right? But when I helped, I ran across and asked her what happened. I want to offer help. I found out she was holding her cat. Her cat was just, had just been run over by her own husband as they reversed the car. One old lady over a dead cat, I can hear the wailing and the screaming from the back of my house. Now listen to this in the account of Exodus 12, 29 to 30. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock, and Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Can you imagine, can you picture how loud the cry would be on that night? Everyone, in the, every single person in the house would be crying out loud that night. In Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, from the very rich and the very top, to the someone in the dungeon, in prison, without exception. It was so terrible that they could not wait till the next morning to get the Israelites out. Remember the demand of God here? Let my people go that they may serve me. If you will not do that, I will kill your firstborn. And this is what happened. It was so terrible that, let, let's continue on reading 31st, verse 31st. Then, this is still at night. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, 
Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Every Egyptians were afraid that night. That very night, the people of God must go. They can't wait till morning. But look at what Pharaoh said here. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Worship the Lord, your God, as you have said. And then he continued on. He said what? And then bless me also. That's interesting, isn't it? I hope you find that interesting. This is the, the king of Egypt who does not worship God. Now he acknowledges who God is. He's not just a God who can take away the firstborn, but he's also the God who can bless. He's the God who gives, and he's the God who takes away. That's the Lord of the Bible. See, two things, right? Pharaoh seemed to understand finally that the heart of the matter here that God demands is worship. Not just freedom, but worship. Because initially when he said, you can go, but you must come back. Or you can go, but don't take your flock, don't take your animals with you. That's what happened in the past, but now he finally understands the heart of the matter is worship of God. A worship of God is, in essence, must be the totality of our life. It cannot be part of our life. It cannot be like, okay, I'm, I worship God of the Bible. I'm dedicated this part of my life to God. That's it. Whatever it is. It could be 90% of your life. That's what Pharaoh offered the people of God, and God says no. Now he finally understood. You go. Take everything. Now go but not only he realized that he also realized blessings come from the lord he said bless me also at least at this stage he believed that we'll, we'll see later he changed his mind again at this point he believed that so now death is terrible i'm not trying to minimize the horror of death here there's a loud wailing a cry in the land that night uh, so how could Christian respond or when we know that death is unnatural, but death is not the end, how should Christian respond to this? Should we be just so cool when someone close to us die or we know someone who has someone close to them die, we should just say, come on, chill, man, you know, this is not the end. Is that how we should respond? How should we respond as a Christian? Well, we can learn from Jesus. I think there's no better example than our Lord Jesus, how he deals with death. And when his best, one of his best friends by the name of Lazarus died, this is what Jesus did in John 11. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, the tomb of Lazarus. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus was deeply moved. The word deeply moved here may not say it, but it, I don't think it's an accurate translation, but in its Greek, original Greek word, it actually means anger, rage, 
Why? Why was Jesus angry at death? Because his friend died? Yes. But because I believe, because death was not, was never God's original plan. Death is the result of sin. Jesus is angry at sin. He knows Lazarus died because of sin. And in the case of Exodus chapter 12 and 13, the sin of misdirected worship resulted in the death of the firstborn. So how we should respond as Christian in the face of death when we experience death in our life? We do this. We, it's okay to be deeply moved. In fact, we should be deeply moved. We should direct anger at death. Now, because we are not without hope, we're going to look at this next. Our attitude should be grief, but not as someone without hope. It says here in, let's look at the third point, the hope of death. First Thessalonians 4.13. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Grief is not the problem. To be upset, to be sad by it, to be angered by it is not the problem. The problem is we do that sometimes as if there is no hope. So the Apostle Paul says, grief but do not grieve like those who have no hope because death was, even though death was never God's initial plan, God has a plan to reverse that. God has a plan to reverse death. So what do we do? We cry, absolutely. We weep, absolutely. We wail, we get angry for the results of death, for the outcome of death, absolutely. But death is just a shadow. It's not the end. King David writes this in Psalm 23, the famous Psalm 23 verse 4. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What does it mean when he says that? What does it mean for King David to say this? King David is showing us that God is a good shepherd and we are his sheep. And we are, when we are in the valley of the shadow of death, we should not be afraid. We should not be terrified of death. Because as helpless as sheep are, they are helpless, but because we have God who is a good shepherd, there's nothing for us to fear. There's nothing for you to fear. That's the first thing. The second thing, notice here, not in the valley of death, but in the valley of the shadow of death. There's someone who, 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 who tried, I can't remember where I get this from, but he explained to me, like, can you imagine being slapped by a, by, by a moving, fast-moving train? You'd probably be dead, right? Try, try to stick your head out, don't do this. Uh, when, when the train's coming on a platform, Right? Let, 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 let the train slap you in the face. Probably snap your neck and die. But how about 
let the shadow of the fast-moving train slap you in the face, what can it do? Nothing. King David says, it's not death, it's the shadow of death that will come upon you. This is why we should not be terrified. This is why King David say, I will not be afraid because God is with me. Because whatever is going to hit us, it's a mere shadow of death. So how is this possible, you ask, when the firstborn in Egypt literally died? They physically dead, not the shadow of death, but real death hits them. How is it possible for us, for King David to say, it's only a mere shadow of death? Why just the shadow? How about the real death? What happened there? Well, it's the shadow because God himself, the good shepherd, faced death head on himself. He take on himself the real train so that we, you and I, experience only the shadow of the moving train hitting us. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 7, In Him, Jesus, we have redemption. How? How do we have redemption? Through His blood. It's because Jesus was hit head on by the moving, fast moving train. His blood has redeemed us. The forgiveness of our trespasses, our sin, our misdirected worship. According to the riches of His grace. That's why we sing that song. Though our sins are many, His mercy is more. His mercy is more. How is that possible? Because Jesus take it head on Himself so that you and I only experience the shadow. Now, I'm reminded as well as, as was quoted on Isaiah. Isaiah talked about God's mercy in a way that God, He explained it to us in a way that God's thoughts are not your thoughts. And I think that's marvelous because sometimes we think when people say, you know, God's ways are not your ways, God's thoughts are not your thoughts, we immediately think when something bad happened to me, we get fired, we got, we got dumped. Whatever experience, bad experience that we experience in life, we say, oh, God's ways are not my ways. So we equate, we, we, we make God's ways equal to when bad things happen in our life, isn't it? God's ways are not my ways. You just accept that. But that's not what the Bible says in Isaiah when God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. God is talking about His mercy. He said, when sinners come to me, I will not punish them. I will give them abundant mercy. And He gave the reason, he said, the reason I can do that is because my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Imagine a friend who cheated on you many times and backstabbing you many times and come to you. What would you do? You wouldn't give mercy. You will slap them back. At least if you're not a violent person, at least you won't talk to them. But that's you. That's your way. That's my way. But God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. When you want to rebel, when you want to revenge, when you want to retaliate, God says, I will forgive. I will pour out more mercy. And that's our God. 
when we fall short in our life, when we are so afraid to coming back to God, say like, God, let me get my act clean up before I coming back to you. Because we, we know we are sinful people. Our ways are, we will not forgive someone until we see that that person has really, really, really repented and know for sure that he or she will not do it again before we even forgive. Even that, we might not ever forgive that person. Right? Husband and wife, we experience this, right? When you get that silent treatment from your spouse, they will say like, yeah, forget about it already, but they just refuse to talk to you. You know they have not forget about it. They still hold grudges. But that's always. And we brought that with God as well. That's why we're so afraid to come to God. We say, let me get my act clean before I come back to you. But God says, no, come now. Because my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Let me read another words from the Apostle Paul from Colossians 1. He says this, He is, this is Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn of all creation. Remember what happened to the firstborn? They must die to pay for the sin of the whole family. For him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself in all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How to make peace? By the blood of the cross. His blood make peace, redeem you and I, so that if the worst thing that could happen to us is a shadow of death, just a shadow, because Jesus took upon himself head on. Now, let, let's look at uh, Exodus 12, back to Exodus 12. Listen to this somewhat cryptic instruction. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, that he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. What is this? What does it mean, this very cryptic instruction? Well, Jesus is the firstborn, we read that, of all creation, not just the firstborn for the Jews, right? Jesus died for all nations, 
for all creation, not just for one family, not even just for the whole ethnic group of Jews. No, this is the firstborn of all creation. Now, when you read this, you must read with that in view, what I've just read in Colossians, no, in, yes, in Colossians 1, as well as Exodus 12 here. And that night, not only the Israelites were saved, it may seem that way when you read chapter 12 and 13, all the firstborn of the people of Egypt, they died, right? It's the Jews who are safe. When we read this, it was clear it was not only the Jews or the Israelites were safe. There were slaves and foreigners who were amongst them that were safe as well. And God gave them instructions. What's the instruction? Well, the instruction is they must be circumcised. The message is this hope in God has nothing to do with ethnic group. So a beautiful church is when you look around, you see multiple ethnic groups come together and worship God. The commitment is what God after, not your, the color of your skin or the color of your hair. On that night, those who commit to God, themselves to God, were saved. See, what kind of commitment? What kind of commitment? Well, a commitment to worship the one true God, to change their, from their misdirected worship to the worship of the Lord God. They show their commitment by, in this case, circumcision. The firstborn son, again, if you're firstborn son, you need to be cut. Um, aren't you glad you're not the son in those days? Um, not the firstborn as well. So I, I'm glad too, by the way. How, how, how do we show our commitment to God today? Not, not through circumcision, not, not through a physical circumcision. When you look at your life, right, today, I'm going to close with this. When, when you look at your life, there's so many competing gods in your life. When you look at it, we, we have those gods in our, those idols that we desire so much are fighting, constantly fighting in our life. We try to push them down. They always resurface their idols. They, they fight for our attention. And you know, deep down in your heart, that you're in trouble. You, can, you ask yourself, I'm, I'm a Christian. How can I still be struggling with this? After becoming Christian for 20 years, I'm still struggling with this. How can that be possible? What's wrong with me, you ask? I ask myself, what's wrong with me? Why am I not better? Why am I not a better person by now? If that's true, how can I be safe? How can I be safe? See, the key here is circumcision, but another kind of circumcision. God provide us with another solution. As a male, as I said, I'm, I'm thankful that it's no longer a circumcision of, of uh, physical matter. It's a circumcision of the heart, the Bible says. And, but when you think deeper about this, it's actually far worse than the physical. It's far harder, not far worse, far harder than a physical circumcision because physical circumcision is a one-off thing. And today, you know, you got anesthetic, you won't feel anything. In those days, they feel the full load of it, right? The full load of it, they feel it and 
Today, you don't feel that, so it's actually quite easy today. But circumcision of the heart, it's an ongoing thing. Whether you're a Christian today, you're a brand new Christian today, as we close, you say, Jesus, come into my life. I want to worship you. I want, to be, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Brand new Christian. Oh, you've been a Christian for 50 years. The circumcision of the heart must happen daily. We must deny ourselves daily. This act of repentance must happen daily. That's why it's hard. Let me tell you one more story. Um, the Good Doctor, a, a, a TV show. I like this TV show, by the way. Uh, the Good Doctor, uh, a medical drama. It's, I think it's on Netflix. Um, it's about a young, young surgeon, brilliant surgeon, but he has autism and he's, he's, uh, he has a savant syndrome. He works at this amazing, prestigious hospital who led by a professor, or doctor, by the name of Glassman, Dr. Glassman. He's a brilliant brain surgeon. He's the president of the place. And Dr. Glassman, in one of the episodes, has just been diagnosed with brain cancer himself. Imagine a, a brilliant, well-known brain surgeon, the best of the best, and he's been diagnosed with brain cancer. Now, he was very concerned, even though he's a surgeon, he's very, because I think he was a surgeon, he knows what could go wrong. He was very concerned about it, about his schedule. He was very nervous. He tried to avoid it, tried to delay it, his reason why he shouldn't do it, about his surgery. And he said this, and I quote, Dr. Glassman said, brain surgeries can be considered a success even when the patient is compromised. So you might end up a vegetable, but you know, it's a success because all the tumor is gone, the patient's still breathing and alive. But you may not be you, you anymore, or complete you anymore. He said, that is considered a success. And he said this, I've been terrible at a lot of things in my life. But when it comes to surgery of the brain, I'm damn good at it. I'm a damn good surgeon. I'm a damn good, smart person when it comes to brain surgery. Now, his concern is this. If I cannot be that, be a good surgeon anymore, be a smart person anymore after my brain surgery, then I don't know who I would be. Perhaps you are very good at what you do. For a long time, I hold on to that identity, being really good at what I'm doing at work. And one of the reasons that hold me back, God's been calling me into, into this ministry of the word. One of the reasons that I've been holding back and delaying is because I'm damn good at what I do. And when I talk to one of my professors at, at college, I say, perhaps this, you know, doing this is not what God wants me to do. Because, and, and he asked me why. He said, because I'm really good at what I'm doing at work, and I'm serving God at church on Sunday. You know, win-win. Perhaps you two are very good at what you do, and that holds you back. And you have been worshiping the wrong God without knowing Maybe you're very good in your career. Maybe you're a very good student. Maybe you're a very good parent. Maybe you're a very good son 
or daughter. Or even, maybe you are a very good Christian. But things that are very good could hinder you from God. And for a long time, being very good at what I do have hindered me to come full term with God. And I don't want you to make the same mistakes. God's blessing in your life, the things that you're very good at, shouldn't hinder you. Instead, it should draw you nearer to God, close to God. If what is very good with you, your skill, your talent, even being good a Christ, being a very good Christian, if that has your heart, it, if that has a grip in your heart, then it has your deepest love. Then your deepest love is not Jesus. And that's the danger of it. And like Dr. Glassman from the TV show, you couldn't e imagine your life without it. To be honest, it's hard for me when I was so deep in whatever good that I'm, I was in to imagine my life without it. Without it, you don't know who you would be. Or perhaps you love fine dining like Poppy and I used to do a lot uh, back in the days bef before we have kids. You know, before when, when you have plenty of disposable income. Perhaps during those days, you can't imagine life without fine dining. What what's yours? What's your version of it that you cannot live without? If it's not God, then that very thing has, gri has a grip on your heart. Without realizing it, you have been enslaved by the very thing that God has blessed you with. Let me close with Romans 2, 26, 20, 28, 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcised outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praises is not from man, but from God. That's true circumcision. That is God, what God's want for you and for me this morning. So this morning, ask yourself, who has your heart? Who has a grip of your heart? Who has your deepest love? What is your most desired? What makes you unmoved, unafraid when facing death? When you when you're facing death head on, what makes you not afraid of it? Is it your career? It's like, I'm not afraid of death. Look at how successful I am at work. Or is it what you have accumulated in your bank account? You say, I'm not afraid of death. Look how much money I have. Think about it. Who has your love? Let us pray.